Well, there's a, there, there's a few things I want to talk to you about this morning, or at least what we're going to talk about is going to impact a number of things if we're doing it rightly. What we want to talk about has to do with human rights, economic policy and political theory, racism, sexism, ageism, classism, abortion, euthanasia, self-worth, self-love, self-loathing, slander, gossip, hatred, malice, bitterness, strife, refugees, freedom, the justice system, just war, environmentalism, just to name a few. Just to name a few. But it might not have to do with you. It will only relate to you if you're the type of person who has ever asked, who am I? Why am I here? What is my life for? What is right and wrong? Why does God seem to care so much about sin and righteousness? Or why does it feel like I'm missing something in my life? In short, I want to talk to you about who you are. Who you are in light of your relationship to God, your relationship to other people, and your relationship to all of God's creation. All of this is bound up with these words that God speaks when he creates the first man and the first woman. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they'll have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. God created us in his image and likeness. If we understand image and likeness, it will change everything. I, I want to explore that under four headings this morning, knowing what it means that we are in God's image and likeness, that we are God's image and likeness. First of all, understanding image and likeness, well, this tells us, this tells us why we were created. It tells us why we, we were created. So if you reflect on the unfolding of the creation narrative so far through Genesis 1 that we've read over the last few weeks, you'll have picked up on this pattern where God says something to the effect of, let there be. Let there be, in the heavens, let, let there be light. Let there be stars and sun and moon in, in, in the expanse. In the waters, he says, let the waters swarm. Let the waters swarm, and there's life in the waters. And on the earth, he says, let the earth bring forth. And the earth brings forth vegetation. And out of the earth, the Lord God makes the animals. Everything comes from the place that it's related to. There's an organic relationship between where God draws things from and what they are designed to be. All of which begs the question, then where does man come from? Where we come from 
is indicative of something of what we're supposed to be. But God words our creation differently in Genesis 1 than any other part of creation. He says this, let us make. Something of the deliberative process, the thinking, the engaging of God himself is what produces the first man and the woman. In other words, if the earth brings forth vegetation, God's mind and God's heart brings forth humanity. What kind are we? What type are we? Where do we fit? We come from God. Verse 26, it's, it's, it's tricky to express in English, but the grammar here in verse 26 basically expresses what grammarians will say. It expresses purpose or result. The clause is designed to show the purpose or the result of creation. So when it says, when God says, let us create man in our image according to our likeness, the intention is that you understand the result. What God is going for is so that, in the ESV it says, and let him have dominion. It's not a successive, it's a result, it's a purpose, so that he will have dominion. We are created from the mind and heart of God in order to rule in God's place over God's creation. You see this in the, for us grammar nerds in the room, uh, you see this in the grammar of the text, and it's, and it's beautiful. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so that he will have dominion. So God is expressing deliberation, and then he works. You read of it in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And something of what we lose in translating this into English is the word that's used here for create when he created man is barak. And the word that he uses in verse 28 when he blessed is barak. There's, there's an intentional there's an intentional parallel being drawn between creation and blessing, creation and purpose, creation and commission of humanity. So God created man in his own image. And then there's these, these two clauses that come after it that are disconnected. They're just kind of floating in the air. They don't further the narrative. They're not telling us something new. It's as if Moses is saying, pause and reflect on these two realities of what you need to take away from the fact that God created us in his image and likeness. One, in the image of God, he created him. Two, male and female, he created them. So when God created them, there are two important takeaways. In his image, male and female. We're going to think about male and female in coming weeks. Today, we want to think about image. But as we said, there's the parallel Right? God created and God blessed. And so when God created, he created him in the image and likeness, male and female, and the commands that come after correspond to the purpose in creation. So if he created the male and female, he's going to command them to be fruitful and multiply, which, despite what people will tell you today, requires male and female. Created the male and female, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. But the first thing we are created for in the image of God then fills in the next commandments to subdue the earth and have dominion. 
Being created in the image and likeness of God is done in such a way, with such an intent, for such a purpose, that the ones who are created will exercise God's dominion. And this is typical of the language of image that we would pick up on. If you're familiar with the culture of Moses' day when he's writing to the ancient Israelites, this is all common stuff for them. Here's Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry. He's, he, he writes this. He says, in the 13th century B.C., Pharaoh Ramses II had his image hewn out of rock at the mouth of the Kelb River on the Mediterranean, just north of Beirut. You don't need to know where that is. I'm just describing it this way, so hopefully this is helpful for you to get a picture. His image displayed like the presidents on Mount Rushmore. That's the image, so you've seen that, right? So Pharaoh did that kind of a thing over a part of the land where he didn't dwell. The reason why he made his image, why would he carve an image of his face? It meant that he was the ruler of the area. In the ancient Near East, since the king is the living statue of the God, he represents the God on earth. He makes the power of the God a present reality. God may not be here, but we see his image so we know he reigns. Pharaoh Ramses, he's not physically here, but we see his image and so we understand this is his dominion. And so we must live according to his law. But we're not simply statues, we're living statues. We engage in relationship with him. This was commonly understood too. So often in ancient cultures, the king would be described, he, he would be described as this one, one like the son of the gods or son of God or some type of title like this that indicates that he has relationship with God himself. So the basis of his rule is functioning as image is the reality that he has relationship with God. So what are we saying? We're saying that both image and likeness have to do with us exercising dominion on God's earth. But one, likeness is vertical. It implies relationship with God. The other image is horizontal. That's our relationship with his creation. So likeness is sonship. Image is servant king. One describes how we relate to God. The other describes how we relate to God's creation on God's behalf. One is fundamental. The other is the working out. One is what we know to be true of God. The other is what we show to be true of God. One is relationship. One is rulership. You know what this does? When we stop to think about the fact that God created us with this capacity for relationship with him, and the opportunity to rule over his creation on his behalf. This endows all humanity with a radical dignity. We, amongst all of creation, out of all of creation, were created for capa with capacity of relating to God as sons and daughters. We, out of all creation, the climax of all creation, it's been building and building and building and building in this big sixth day with like three times the number of words of any other day. It all builds towards the climax of the creation of man and woman who will rule on God's behalf. There is a radical dignity that is endowed on humanity. It also implies a radical equality. A radical equality. See, here's, here's Peter Gentry again. He says this, In Egypt, 
Only the king is the image of God. In the Bible, all humans constitute the image of God, regardless of gender. That's significant, right? In an ancient Near Eastern context where women didn't have the rights or the dignity of men, God, in his word from the first pages of Scripture, speaks to the reality that both male and female of all strata of society are created as the image and likeness of God. There's a radical equality built into understanding what God has made us to be as humans, regardless of what gender we are or where we fit in society. And this brings with it a radical stewardship. See, what we're created to be is not ours to determine. We cannot underline that sentiment enough in our day. What you are supposed to be is not yours to decide. You are a part of creation, designed and created with a purpose to be in relationship with the one who created you and to reflect him to all of his creation. We have as much right to determine our own identity as a mirror has to determine what it wants to project. That's not our call. We have been designed with identity and purpose. We are ruling. We are representatives of him. This is what we are designed for. But, but again, this for the ancient Near Eastern audience, for the people of Moses' day, this, this wasn't just a status concept. It's a moral concept. It's, it's the type of concept that the king is supposed to rule in such a way in the surrounding cultures as to reflect the nature of the God that he says he's the son of. So if we have relationship with God, for his sons or his daughters, that becomes for us then a moral category as well. See, here's, here's how some of this connects, okay? So let's think about what we've seen over the first few weeks. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who reigns over all things, but there is chaos. So what is God going to do? God is going to bring order to all of his creation. How does he get his work done? How does he do it? It's through his word and his spirit. And now God has created humans in his image and likeness to relate to him with capacity for his indwelling spirit, entrusted with the preservation and proclamation of his word to go and bring his order to all creation. In other words, to take his kingdom to every corner of the earth. We are the agents of his order by his word and his spirit. That's what it means to bring his kingdom to earth. That brings some blessed limitations, as we've already said. We don't have to come up with some kind of identity. Who am I? Great existential crisis. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're a king. You're a ruler of creation. You're created with nobility to reflect the living God who created all things. You don't have to find a greater purpose than that. And you don't have to keep up with an evolving morality. What am I supposed to think is right today? What am I supposed to think is wrong today? What type of language am I supposed to use today? What if I say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, appear backwards? We're agents of the word that does not change. We bring the order of God to creation. The upward, 
always orients outward. This brings great freedom. At least it should. But the reality is that we often don't feel this in our day-to-day life, right? So understanding image and likeness is supposed to tell us why we're created. But understanding image and likeness, here's the second thing. It also tells us what we've lost It tells us the story of what we've lost. Because remember, if the upward determines the outward, if it sets the trajectory for the outward, and the upward is lost, if our relationship with God is broken, it's going to create all kinds of problems. And that's exactly what we see. So in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what is the reality? What happens? They are exiled. They're sent away from God. In Genesis 3.24, we read this. He drove out the man in the, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We are cut off. We are separated. We are sent away because of our sin, away from our God. And as the story of Scripture unfolds, you keep seeing this as a pattern over and over. So that when the, the, the temple or, or when the tabernacle is built, there's a holy place that people can't go in. When God appears on the mountain, the people can't go up and touch the mountain. Even when the temple is built, a permanent temple, there's still a holy of holies where the people cannot go. And then eventually the people themselves, when they continue in sin, are cast out of the land again, away from God. Perpetual exile, away, away, away. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, describing our reality, our lost reality as sinners. He says, remember that you were at that time separated, separated, cut off from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If we're created for relationship with him, And all of our obedience outward is dependent on that connection, that healthy relationship upward. And the relationship upward is cut off. That's going to have impact for everything that we do outward. See, all of our living, all of our ruling, all of our imaging, our projecting is supposed to be based on what we see of him. And if we're cut off from him, what do we do? Our life ends up feeling like the Israelites who, when they were enslaved in Egypt, were told, make bricks without straw. We're supposed to keep going. We're supposed to keep making the bricks, but we don't have the straw. We're supposed to somehow reflect God and bring love and justice and equity to his creation, but we're cut off from the one who's the source of all clarity and truth and life. It's like trying to catch your breath underwater. You, you know the only thing you can do is try to get to the surface, but the harder you swim, the more desperately you need the air. And so much of the anxiety that we feel in life is knowing that we're supposed to be something and do something and live some way, but we don't know the one who fills all those things with meaning. And so it creates desperation. All of our grasping for identity, for love, for acceptance is a longing to return to relationship with the one who created us for himself. See, we're, we're like the moon. We're designed to give light to creation, but we're not the source of the light we're supposed to give. And when our relationship with the sun is cut off, we ourselves become darkness. We're like a projector 
supposed to cast on the screen. Oftentimes when we think of image, what it means to be the image of God, we think of something passive, something that we receive, but I think it's active. It's what you're projecting. It's what you're showing. So so if what we're supposed to be projecting is God himself, but somehow the HDMI cable has been disconnected from God, the relationship from God, the source itself has been disconnected, what are we going to do? We know we have to project something, and so we run around trying to plug into something to give us meaning, something to give us order, something to give us truth, something to define love love. We just end up projecting whatever we plug into. If our relationship with God is broken, then whatever we project is going to be the wrong image, which means we're going to have broken relationships with one another. We were created for covenantal love from God and to show that love to others. But instead, when we're cut off from the source, what we show to others is something different. Rather than pulling from the fresh water of the inexhaustible well of his love, we just keep pulling up the sludge and the muck from the bottom of the cisterns of our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. All that comes out instead of love is strife. And our world is filled with it. If you don't believe me after this service, just pull up Twitter for five seconds. This is the human heart, it's our hearts. We have broken relationships with one another. We have broken relationships with God's creation. We understand this comes right from the very beginning. This is what God said when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what God said? Genesis 3, 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Pain! Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. You want bread? You want vegetables? You want food? What you're going to get is thorns and thistles. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Rather than the ground bringing forth fruit and living things for you, you're going to die and return to it. The relationship with creation is all broken. You see this just a few chapters later in the flood when God says this, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 7, So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Those are all the categories of creation. Why is he wiping them out? They didn't sin. It's because of us and our broken relationship with God that yields brokenness in relationship with all of creation. He says, For I am sorry that I have made them, made man. You want to know why there's earthquakes and famines and tsunamis and tornadoes and crazy storms that flip over our trampoline and break it, knock down trees all over Uxbridge so people are without power for weeks? You want to know why animals attack us and why we abuse them? It's because we sin. We broke the covenantal relationship with God And as a result, our relationships horizontally are distorted as well. 
This is how Paul reflects on it in Romans chapter 8. He says this, Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, which means all the disorder, all the disarray, all the chaos, it's all because the one who was created to rule over this earth and to bring order here has broken relationship with God and broken relationship with creation. And this is the state of our world. It tells us the story of all that we have lost. We groan. But we don't groan as those without hope. Because here's, here's the third thing that image and likeness, if we understand it, the third thing that it tells us, image and likeness, it will fuel our passion for mission. It will fuel our passion for mission. As the church, as Christians, of those who have trusted in Christ, we're the people who have been restored to God. And, and the story goes something like this. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came the true likeness and image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, came and took on flesh and lived on earth in perfect unbroken relationship with God, modeled for us what it looks like to have the vertical perfectly sorted so that you can represent horizontally. Do you want to know what it would look like for God to dwell on earth? what righteousness, what love, what steadfast faithfulness would look like, look no further than Christ. He lived a perfect righteousness, the perfect image and likeness of God in our place. But then he died on behalf of those who were under a curse. He took our death so that everyone who acknowledges I'm broken, my sin has led me astray, I need Jesus' death in my place. I need him to take the curse for me, can have restored relationship with God so that by faith we become sons and daughters again of the living God, reconciled to him by faith. With the vertically restored by faith in Jesus, we become those who can now operate functionally, horizontally, bringing his dominion reflecting his image of love and faithfulness, of charity and kindness over all creation, spreading his dominion, bringing his kingdom like we were created. It fuels mission. It has to, right? Because this is the pattern. Think about it. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't simply bless them so that they would be blessed. He blessed them so that they'd take that blessing to all creation. When he began again with Noah, the, the, the hope of Noah wasn't that he would bring rest to himself. It was that he would bring rest to the earth. When God begins again with Abraham, it wasn't simply that Abraham would be blessed so that, oh shucks, Abram, you'll be really blessed. It was so that through you I will bless all the nations. This is the pattern so that when Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true Adam, comes and sends his people and blesses them as he commissions them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, he words it this way. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So therefore go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's right, relationship vertically, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's restoration horizontally. Right relationship is what fuels our passion for his reign spreading through all creation. Our rightly restored relationship with God, our restored likeness, must enable us to bring his kingdom on earth as his image. And when I talk about mission and purpose, obviously I'm talking about the proclamation of the gospel, but I need you to understand I'm talking about so much more than that. Faithfully lived out mission as a son or daughter of God is about the way that you live, what you project, what you show. What message are you bringing to the world about what your God, your Father, what is He like? Colossians 3, Paul says this Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what he means is function ethically, morally, righteously, being zealous for good works because your relationship with the source of life and good works and righteousness has been restored. How do you treat other people? Knowing that you are the image of God. So this is, this is a little bit backwards from how we often think about this question. I've often heard people say, oh, that other person is created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore you should treat them as X or Y or Z. But I think fundamentally, first and foremost, before it says anything about how you view the other person, it says something about how you view yourself. How you treat someone who is weak someone who has been unjust to you, someone who has been unfair, how you respond to them, someone who doesn't deserve your mercy or your grace or your forgiveness, says something about what you perceive yourself to be. It projects what you perceive your God to be. Friends, this has all kinds of ramifications in every area of life. How should I treat this person? Well, how does God posture himself toward this person? Because that's what I'm supposed to embody and help them see. I'm the image, the testimony of how God relates to this person so that through my actions and through my words, I'm preaching, I'm telling to this person, this is how God sees you and relates to you. I'm his image, I'm making it visible. That has profound ramifications, profound ramifications for how you treat other people, for how you interact with his creation, how you interact with animals. This has impact on every area of our lives. Right relationship with him reorients us to everything in his creation. But this question, of course, I mean, in, in, in a fallen world, it's not simple, right? How does God stand towards this person? And therefore, how should I embody that? And what should I show? 
None of us do it perfectly. And all of us have these decisions, these situations in our life where we have to make decisions and we don't know what to do and it's hard and we think this is the right thing and we're going this way and I don't know. And, and so as much as we have the category, right, it's still hard to work out and we still have to wrestle through the decision and I don't like it, but that just builds the longing for the day we won't have to make any more decisions or think anything through. It builds longing for the day when relationship being perfectly restored with God, when we see him for who he is, we'll know perfectly what to do in every situation as we relate to every other person. So here's the last thing. Image and likeness helps us understand. Image and likeness, it stirs our hearts with longing. Longing, longing for the day. Here's how John describes it in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, see what kind of love, what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of a love does Father give to children that we should be called children of God? He brings us into relationship and calls us sons and daughters. And so we are. It was so the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. God has said so. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. The goal of all of our creation, the goal of our existence is to finally see, see with perfect unbroken vision where we never have to look away the one for whom and by whom we were created that in seeing him we'll finally understand ourselves that's what I'm supposed to be and in an instant transformation we will become all that we were created to be we will see him as he is so we will become like him his image his likeness we long for the day when relationship fully restored brings image and likeness fully restored. As regards relating to the source, we'll finally have right water from the right well. We'll finally be the moon in un- broken line of sight with the sun will truly love others finally isn't isn't this our longing so much of our longing is simply to love and to be loved Here, here's how c.s lewis describes this future reality he says in heaven there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds Somehow we wonder how that is, right? How are we going to perfectly love other people? Aren't we supposed to be all worshiping God? And here's what he says. We will never have to turn away from our earthly beloveds. First, because we shall have turned already from the portraits in them to the original in God. From the rivulets to the fountain, from the creatures he made lovable to love himself. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him, by loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we now do. 
all that we have loved in them will be perfectly and fully formed, find its realization in him so that we will see them in him. All that we have loved, all that was true of them will be in him. And in our love of him, we will truly love them. Relationship rightly restored to other people. Relationship rightly restored with all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Paul said, for the creation waits with eager longing for, look at what it's waiting for, the revealing of the sons of God. When when is creation going to be freed from its groaning? When will everything be set right? When will the animals be in right relationship with each other and with us? When will nature no longer be full of chaos and destruction? When? When the sons of God are made right with God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation can't get there without us. So in the day when we are fully restored to God, all of creation likewise will be fully restored and us to it. And it is what we have longed for and it is good. God's words in day six, it will be very good. This is what we're created for. Knowing him who's the source of all life and truth and justice and love and peace and mercy and goodness. Knowing him in such a way vertically in relationship with him that we bring his reign horizontally reflecting his justice and love and mercy and goodness and kindness in right relationships with all of his creation, all order brought through his sons and daughters. It will come. We long for that day now. Let's pray together.